right. Good morning and welcome to Chanel. It is, it's going to be tough to follow that. Um, but I'm going to do my best. But it's so glad to see you this morning. If you're joining us online, go ahead and drop Miles a comment. He is paying attention to the live stream and he would love to chat with you during this sermon. Uh, but anyway, we're glad that you're here with us this morning. Excited to see you. So we're finishing our series this morning, Come to the Table, after talking about the distracted, the uninvited, the enemy, the insiders. And today we close with the topic of the outsiders. I'm talking about people who maybe they don't feel welcomed or included or feel like church just has never been a place that they could be a part of. To illustrate this, I'd like to talk about me in elementary school. There are no pictures of this because they've all been burned. Uh, no one needs to see those pictures of me in middle school or in elementary school. Middle school, I went through a, a kind of a blonde phase. I wanted to bleach my hair. Things were weird, but my parents entertained it. But in elementary school, uh, there was a fashion trend that came over largely the Christian community, at least in Kentucky. I'm sure it did as, where, uh, here as well. And do we have a picture, Miles? I think we do. The WWJD bracelets. Now, just by show of wrist, who still has theirs on? Well, the movement is dead. Um, now, I, I bring that up just kind of joking, but when I was in elementary school, this was huge, right? The WWJD bracelets. Uh, you could go to your local Christian bookstore, get any color that you wanted. If you were a devout Christian, you doubled up. Sometimes you did two on one wrist. Sometimes you had one on your left and right wrist. Just depending on your speed. Whatever you wanted to do, you could do that. But the WWJD bracelet movement kind of started because of the ease of it. WWJD stood for what would Jesus do? Now, if you're familiar with how this worked, if you had a bracelet and somebody said, hey, what does that bracelet mean? What were you supposed to do with it? No one? Okay. This is not a big movement here, was it? You, if somebody asked you, what does WWJD stand for? You were to say, it stands for what would Jesus do? And then you were to give that person your bracelet. Then you would go back to the Christian bookstore and buy yourself another one. And you can kind of see the, the monetary element of it there. But as long as you're spreading the gospel, somebody's making money. But this movement here became really popular because of that, because of the ease in sharing the gospel. All you had to do was just explain, what would Jesus do? You know, it's a reminder of how to live my life through my actions and through my thoughts. Like, it was super simple and super easy to do. Now, when I was in elementary school, I doubled up, had a bracelet on one, on one wrist and on the other as well, just in case the opportunity for evangelism came about. I've always been a budding evangelist, always been interested in sharing the gospel, which is why I found myself here. But in elementary school, I was ready, and I had these bracelets, and I was armed to share the gospel. And I remember one day in elementary school, we were walking, and a girl comes up to me and says, hey, what do those bracelets mean? And I thought, this is it. This is my time to shine. I have been waiting and wearing these bracelets for weeks now, not had an opportunity to share the gospel, but yet now this wayward Christian traveler wants to know, what do these letters on my wrist mean? So I explained to her. I said, the wrist, the bracelet means, what would Jesus do? It's a reminder of how to live my life through my actions and reflect on the teachings of Jesus, how, how I would live my life based off of how Jesus taught me. And she looked at me and said, huh, cool. My family doesn't go to church. And I thought, what? Your family doesn't go to, like, that's a choice for you? Um, I remember thinking, what do you mean your family doesn't go to church? 
And we had this conversation how on Sundays her family just does whatever they want to do. And I thought, you don't go to church. We go twice. Like, you don't double dip on Sundays? And I remember thinking as a kid, like, that was the first time that I met someone outside of my Christian bubble. Like, they didn't live the same way that I lived. It's okay. It's fine. They, they didn't. But as a kid, that moment set in with me because I thought, I had this bracelet. I was supposed to evangelize this person. The bracelet was supposed to lead to baptism, conversion, all the good stuff. But yet it didn't. And that moment of feeling like I just met somebody on the outside has always stuck with me. And this morning we end this series and we talk about outsiders. When I talk to people about church and they ask about Chanel, normally they'll say, what kind of church is it? And we have kind of that Baskin-Robbins conversation of the different flavors of churches. I get to what, you know, non-denominational Church of Christ is. I explain that. And then as the dialogue continues, I eventually get to this particular question. Would I be welcome there? Now the I is sometimes replaced with, would my son be welcome there? Would my neighbor be welcomed at your church? What about my coworker? If I told you a little bit about them, would they be welcomed at your church? And regardless of how you frame it, the same sentiment is there. There's a feeling of being an outsider, feeling unwelcomed, like church is maybe not the place for them. And luckily for us this morning, we have an example of how to talk to people who feel like they're on the outside. Jesus gives us different groups of people who felt like they were outsiders during his day. And this morning, I want to briefly walk through a few of those and highlight how Jesus reached out to those who felt like they were on the outside. How Jesus communicated with those who felt like they weren't welcomed and didn't have a place in a community. What Jesus did and how he saw those people and how that changed those people as well as the people in that community. Because for the first time in a lot of their lives, they were given a place. So we start with the largest demographic that Jesus likely worked with, the poor. At the time of Jesus, the poor consisted of roughly 90% of the overall population. I'm talking about people that fall within the lowest socioeconomic level of Jesus' time. Uh, You've got individuals that would have been beggars who just had to ask people for resources. They didn't have anything. And so when they got anything, it was because someone gave it to them. We also have slaves in that category. Individuals who their entire existence revolved around serving other people. And so it, makes, it should be of no surprise that when Jesus makes his first statement in his earthly ministry by reading the scrolls of Isaiah, he goes to this passage in Luke chapter 4. It reads, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus selects the passage from Isaiah, but think about that when you realize the population base, the largest one that Jesus would have been addressing, the poor, those on the outside, who didn't have access to finer things, who didn't have access in their minds to the kingdom. And yet this Messiah comes around, and the first thing that he reads from the scrolls of Isaiah is about the Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. It's likely the first time that this particular demographic would have been addressed in this way. It would have been seen. Think about this for a moment, that if if you were poor in this context, how this would have resonated with you. Your whole life, you didn't have enough. 
for the first time, someone sees you, sees you with value and with purpose and meaning, and the message is for you as well. So it should be of no surprise that when Jesus delivers the Beatitudes in Luke chapter 6, it's a similar sentiment. Jesus says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. But look where Jesus starts with the Beatitudes. He starts with this population base that was large, that would have been unseen, overlooked, excluded, outcast. He, they weren't the focus of this particular age and time. But yet when Jesus starts his ministry, and the first demographic that he references in the Beatitudes, it's reflecting on the poor. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's, he's not increasing their financial situation. There's no promise of that changing. This is not the prosperity gospel by any means. Jesus isn't saying, if you follow me, you're going to get more money. But I promise you, Jesus is adding to their worth, to how they feel. Because for the first time, someone has gone out of their way to make sure that they have a seat at the table. And so the first kind of step that we see here in how Jesus communicates and treats outsiders is that he gives them space. He adds value to their existence. In this context, by merely saying it, that you have purpose, you have meaning, that God is wanting you to have a place at this table. And here it's about access and making sure that they have room. But this isn't the only group of outsiders that Jesus focuses on. Because he also focuses on the sick. In this day and age, regardless of the illness, the afflicted person could not participate in the fullness of life. They were on the outside looking in. With, with the poor, they, they didn't have the means to gain that access. With the sick, they didn't have the ability to. And often a lot of people who fall, fell within this category of people, they didn't have the help either. And we're going to look at a story in just a moment where someone did have help, but more often than not, they didn't. And so the very people who needed that assurance, who needed that access, were denied it. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus encounters a man with leprosy. It says, while Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. Lepers in this day and age were the, the outsider's outsider. When you had leprosy, you had to leave your own community, your own house, and go live in a community full of lepers. Yes, you had community, but you were still, you were an outsider. You were denied relationships and connection and just feeling like you were a part of something larger than yourself. You're removed from your whole society. It says, when he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. As this is the language of an outsider. This is the language of somebody who desperately wants to be a part of what Jesus is doing. This leper, this man who is cursed with leprosy, he can feel that for the first time Jesus can see him. That Jesus can add value to his life. That Jesus can provide access to the kingdom that he has been denied from. And Jesus reaches out his hand and touches the man in Luke 5, 13. 
Before we move on, I want us to remember who Jesus is hanging around with. The disciples, what I would often identify as the fun police. Anytime something fun could potentially be happening, the disciples shut it down. And so I don't want to ignore that they are there, but think about that for just a moment. That Jesus is with the disciples in Luke chapter 5. You know that one of them tried to put Jesus' hand down. Like you can almost see it, right? Or you can see the audible gasp, or you can hear the audible gasp of, don't touch him. Jesus, do not touch this leper. In in Jesus' day and age, even if it was a clean person, if they were determined to be clean religiously, by touching this leper, Jesus would be unclean. Jesus reaches out his hand and touches the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately, see, immediately the leprosy left him. See what Jesus is doing there? He's making room. He's making the outsider feel like, hey, come on, we've got a chair for you. I know that society has told you that you have to live on the outskirts. I know that society has told you that you are not welcome here. But Jesus is saying, you know what? I'm going to go out of my way. It may be uncomfortable. It may cost me something, but I'm going to make sure that you have access. And I mentioned a second ago that a lot of these individuals who fall within the sick category, they don't have resources. Some did, though. In Luke chapter 5 and verse 18, we, know this, we hear the story of the paralytic man who is brought in by his friends. He's on this mat. We've heard this story before. We know it. But I want us to look at it just again to see how Jesus makes space for those who are sick. Luke chapter 5, verse 18, Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into a house to lay before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this, because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat. I love this story because of this. You see just the desire of the friends who understand who Jesus is, that this is their friend's opportunity to encounter the Messiah And they're going to do whatever it takes. But think of how if that had happened in our society, right? If somebody comes in that's that's handicapped, that needs extra help, we open the doors for them. We part like the Red Sea. We make sure that they have access. Do you see how no one responds like that in this story? Nobody moves. Nobody makes space for this person. Nobody says, hey, let me help you out. Let me help you carry this man in. The only reason this man gets close to Jesus because his friends are willing to push through the barriers, go on the roof, and make access for their friend. They went on the roof, lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. It's another story, though, where Jesus makes room for someone. Society is saying, do not include this person. They're not welcome. They're sick. They don't have value. But Jesus is saying, no, you have value. And man, you've got great friends too. We need friends like that in our lives. If you don't have friends that will carry you on a mat in your lowest moment, you need to find some. But you need to know that regardless of what happens in your life, Jesus is going to make space for you. You see this here in the story of Luke chapter 5 where Jesus does this for this man. He doesn't have access, but Jesus provides a seat at the table for him. You're not going to be surprised, but there's more people that were excluded in this society. The religiously excluded. This was a group of people that weren't considered pure. 
Maybe they didn't practice the law perfectly. Maybe they didn't understand it. Maybe they had different backgrounds. Or maybe they just associated with people who the religious community considered unclean or impure. And often in Scripture, it's the insiders or the religious elite that determined an individual's relationship with God was based on how they fulfilled the teachings and the commandments. But Jesus associates with sinners, with tax collectors, with women. And you see this in Matthew chapter 9 when Jesus references what it looks like to follow him. He says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I'm going to reframe it just for this sermon series, but it's not the insiders that need a seat at the table. We've already got seats. It's the outsiders that we need to scoot over, find another chair in the room and say, hey, you are welcome at this table as well. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I've not, called, I've not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. A story that we've already talked about a little bit in the sermon series in Luke chapter 7. One of my favorite lines to this whole study is when Jesus asked Simon, do you see this woman? Do you understand that this woman who you've excluded because she's not a man, do you understand that she has value and purpose? She has a place in the kingdom. She has a seat at the table. And we know how Jesus responds. He says, I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she, went, she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. So great love is shown, but whoever has been forgiven, little loves little. Again, this is another example of somebody being excluded because... The religious elite said, ah, oh, the life you're living, it doesn't fit at this table. There's no space for you here. We don't have a seat at this table because of how you've lived your life. There's another example in Mark chapter 7, this Syrophoenician woman. This is a woman who's a Gentile. She does not have a place in this Jewish community. But look at how Jesus responds when she comes to him pleading. Jesus enters this village discreetly. Jesus doesn't want anyone to know that he's there. But isn't that the, kind of the beauty of outsiders who have to have a place at the table? They'll do whatever it takes. So she finds out that Jesus is there. It says, in fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her. And they have this exchange about breadcrumbs where she says, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. But listen to how Jesus responds to an outsider, to somebody that the religious community said, you do not have a place. Verse 29, for such a great reply you may go. The demon has left your daughter. Again, another example where the religious community said, you do not have a place here. You don't have a seat at our table. But Jesus is saying, hey, I'm going to do whatever it takes to make sure that there's room for you. And the last group that, that I want to look at this morning are the politically and socially excluded, which there were a lot of them in Scripture as well. One of the most famous ones, I think, is, is Matthew. In Luke chapter 5, after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector. We've talked about this story in this sermon series as well. By the name of Levi, sitting in his tax booth, follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. 
It's the same sentiment that you see developing in Matthew chapter 9, but in Luke 5, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Levi was a tax collector. He was working for the Roman government. He was stealing from his fellow Jews. He was politically and socially on the outside. They did not like him. I can't emphasize that enough. The scripture gives us all those details that Matthew was on the outside. Matthew should not have had a place at the table, but what Jesus does is he ignores all of those social cues and says, you've got a place at my table. When society pushes you aside, when society says you're not welcome here for the things that you've done politically, socially, Jesus is saying, I've got a seat for you at my table. Matthew chapter 8, another example of someone politically that was excluded. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Get a couple of details here that this Roman centurion would not have been welcomed at all. He would also have been a political individual who was excluded from the table. But again, look how Jesus responds to this person. He's a non-Jew. He's a commander in the Roman army. His purpose in life was literally to oppress the Jewish people. Yet Jesus provides space and welcomes this man. This is when Jesus had entered Capernaum and a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. And they have this dialogue where Jesus responds, or the centurion replies to Jesus, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. Do you see this, like, the power in that faith, in the belief of this man who would have been considered an outsider? Someone who doesn't have a place at the table. But he gets it. I made a joke earlier about the disciples. Those closest to Jesus often miss the point time and time and time again. When Jesus talks about children and women, the the disciples are constantly trying to push those people away and saying, Jesus, this doesn't really fit the narrative. And Jesus is saying, I'm here for the outsiders. I'm here to make sure that people have a place at the table. And listen to how Jesus responds in verse 10. Truly I tell you, I've not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. This was a a time where everyone would have listened to every word that Jesus said. And the person that Jesus gives this reference to is a Roman centurion, an outsider both politically and socially, yet Jesus goes out of his way to make sure that this person knows you have a seat at the table. There's another thing that that Jesus does in Matthew chapter 8. He goes into Peter's house. And I want to kind of label this as a a social thing that Jesus does. But it says, when Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. We see this and we think, excellent, a Jesus miracle. Woman has a fever, it's gone. Wonderful. Great job, Jesus. But there's a lot of social things here that Jesus has just trampled over. This would not have been acceptable in this time for Jesus just to go in to Peter's mother's house like this. But he does it. He goes past the the social cues and says, you know what, I'm doing kingdom things. Sometimes doing kingdom work looks different. Sometimes it's uncomfortable. 
But there are things that need to be done. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she got up and began to wait on him. But look what happens because he does that. When, ev- when evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him. And he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. As we come to a close with this sermon series, I, I want to land on Matthew chapter 5. Where Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Not even the tax collectors doing that. If you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. What Jesus calls us to is not easy. It's challenging. It's uncomfortable at times. It may not even be fun. But the work that Jesus calls us to is is beautiful. It's powerful. It's life-changing if we do it. We see this reflected in what Matthew chapter 5 says. Jesus is calling us to live a life that is different than the world lives. It is so much easier to just do the things that we want to do and hang out with the people that we want to hang out with. But if we are going to be a part of kingdom building, we are going to have to at times get uncomfortable. And when outsiders come into our community, we have to make sure that they have a place here, that they have seats at our table. And so at the end of this series, we are faced with this question. What type of community are we going to become? Will we be a church that adds more table, adds more chairs to our table, or one that tells individuals that they aren't welcome? In the Gospels, we see Jesus building a community of outsiders. These new followers are likely experiencing for the first time inclusion and purpose. And the road is not easy, but it is rewarding. So as we move forward, as you leave here this morning, you go into your weeks, save a spot for somebody at your table. Make sure that they know that they've got a seat beside you. And then hopefully, because you've included them in your life, you can include them in our community here. Because we want to make sure that people are welcomed and that they have a seat when they come. Let's stand and sing together.